0: It is a joy to see you guys back here for the summer. If you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning. Uh, If I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Trey Corey. I'm normally over at our Southwood campus, but this summer I'm going to pop over here with you guys over at Anderson. And so we are thrilled to have you guys back uh, for the summer. Thrilled to have you guys and get kicked up and going. We're going to be Ephesians 2 this morning, uh, beginning in verse 11. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, you can follow along with me. Paul writes this. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Father, whether we are thrilled for what you have in front of us this summer uh, or whether we are dreading it, Lord, I pray that you meet with us this summer. I pray that this summer you would have things in store beyond our own anticipation, that you would do things in our life and through our life that we never would have imagined, Lord, that you would do some really profound things in our summer. I pray that you would teach us about you. I pray that you'd move us into an experience of community that we've not yet experienced, maybe even here in this local church. Lord, that you'd grow us, that you'd mature us, that you'd develop us in ways um, that we can't even imagine right now. Lord, I pray that you would infuse our summer with purpose, with meaning, with significance, and that you do things that we didn't even see coming. Lord, I thank you that you uh, have accepted us, uh, that even as we sang, that we are yours, and that you would lay your own son's life down on a cross so that we could find in you acceptance and a place and a belonging. And Father, I pray that you would draw us into that understanding even more profoundly this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit, amen. Well, I will tell you guys, uh, for those of y'all who don't know me, uh, my wife, Marcy, and I have two kids. Uh, our little girl is now four and a half. Her name's Caroline. Our little boy is uh, Colt. He's about two, all right? And this time last year, we were coming back from, what I think, one of the greatest places in the state of Texas. Uh, I know we have Kyle Field here, all right? We get to see it all the time, all right? Newly renovated Kyle Field is going to be amazing, all right? But we were coming back from what I think was one of the greatest places in the state of Texas. And one of the privileges of parenthood, I'll tell you, is that all of the things that you want to do that you feel like you're too old to do, with parenthood you get to do. And so last year coming back from this place it would begin kind of an obsession for me about all things water park related, all right? I don't know if you guys have been to the Great Wolf Lodge, all right? An indoor water park in Grapevine, Texas, all right? I still dream of it most weeks. An incredible place, all right? I'll tell you kind of Going into this trip about a year ago, we would spend hours on their actual website, all right, uh, letting our kids look at the slides, the whole indoor water park thing, all right. They knew every single piece of the park. They were thrilled out of their mind, all right. If our little girl could be on Twitter, it would have been a worldwide trend because everyone in her life, uh, teachers, uh, fellow friends, they all knew that she was heading to this place for a few days, all right. We were thrilled out of our mind. Absolutely stoked. Couldn't wait, all right. Uh, I felt like I had that kind of dad thing going on uh, of an overly uh, heightened expectation of all the greatness that was going to come. All right? And so we get there, and three minutes into the experience, I very quickly begin to realize this whole thing is going to go nothing like I imagined. In the midst of all the excitement, all of the, the absolute thrill that we had going into this place, I realize that within three minutes, all right, this whole trip is going to be nothing like I hope, because in three minutes, I quickly realize that all of Caroline, our girl's excitement about this place, has quickly subsided because she is absolutely terrified of all kinds of splashing water. And all kinds of water slides, all right, which is just a little tiny problem when you're going to an indoor water park. Uh, It's one thing to not want to take a shower, but it's another thing to avoid splashing water. So for the next three days, we spend the entirety of this time, all right, that we pay good money for, in the baby pool, with uh, avoiding all kinds of splashing water and avoiding all slides over a foot, all right? I was absolutely depressed, disappointed, and adrift, all right? I was so sad, all right? And I began boggling my mind, how in the world do we have weeks of absolute, almost paralysis-like excitement to all of a sudden, in about three minutes, to be subsided for absolute paralysis-like fear? How could you, on one hand, be absolutely so thrilled for something, and then yet, at the same time, be absolutely fearful of the exact same thing, all right? For the next three days, we would spend the entirety of the time in the baby pool, missing the greatness that this place had to offer. The absolute missing, the entirety of this place. I'm going to submit to you guys this morning as we kind of jump into a series that we're going to call College Matters this summer, looking at a series of kind of standalone issues. I'm going to submit to you as we think about the idea of community, that the same paradox exists in community, all right? That you and I have a desperate desire for community. But if we're honest with each other, I'd submit to you guys as well that we have a desperate fear about community as well. We desperately want to know and be known, but we're also at the same time absolutely fearful that if someone really knew us, (laughs) they would walk away. Or that even in a first encounter with us, they would walk away. We're absolutely insecure and unsure whether we have value, whether we're loved, whether we uh, have a place to belong. And so we wonder and we fear, we walk through that so much. Which is why junior high was absolutely the worst experience any of us could have ever had, right? 98% of us felt like we were on the outside. There was a 2% that were proud, that we had everything, right? We wanted to be them, right? They were in the inside, but the rest of us were looking from the outside in, all right? We've gotten to college where that whole dynamic shifts, but still profoundly at the core of us, so there's this deep sense and this deep fear of, are we going to be known? And if someone truly knew us as we truly were, would they walk away? We have this desperate desire to know and be known and yet at the same time an incredible fear about if we were truly known, how would people respond? Would we find the same sense of acceptance if they really knew us? What I want to do in Ephesians 2 this morning is show you in a sense God's answer to that issue. God's answer to that paradox of this desperate desire to be known and be in community at the same time though with an incredible fear of trying to get into that kind of experience of community. What would people think if they really knew us? What we're going to see in Ephesians 2, for some of you guys, maybe a familiar passage. For some of you, maybe the first time you've seen it, Ephesians is an incredible book, truly about the spiritual community that we call the church. There's no greater book that shows you really, in a sense, what the church is meant to be and how God has designed the church than Ephesians. And Ephesians 2, to me, is one of the greatest passages about the church. I want to show you what God has created, what God has constructed so that we could be a part of it. But before we get there, I first want you guys to see what God is going to tear down. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 really are, in a sense, are going to be not what God has constructed, but are going to be what Jesus is going to have to tear down, in a sense. In, Genesis, or in uh, Ephesians 2 and 11, what you're going to see as we begin, in a sense, is the shame of exclusion. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes this, That remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the circumcision... Paul is going to highlight an issue going on between two groups of people. On one hand, you have the Gentiles. On the other hand, you have the Jews. The Jews, the chosen people of God from the Old Testament, that God had granted incredible promises and covenants to them throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. In fact, they had certain traditions. They had certain rites that had given them incredible sense of pride about their identity and about their group status. And in the midst of that group status, it wasn't just pride about their inclusion, but it was also pride in a sense of bullying kind of uh, experience in which they would begin to exclude everyone else. So notice how they refer to the Gentiles. They themselves who were the circumcision denoting what they had. They began to refer to another group by the basis of what that group didn't have. All right. So they begin to refer to this group as the uncircumcision. All right. And essentially what you have here is this beginning of these two, in a sense, groups battling. You're going to have one group that's going to be a bully. Who's going to look to try to exclude another group of people. And it starts with simple name calling. All right. The Jews who were the circumcision calling the Gentiles the uncircumcision. And for all of us who grew up with moms who said sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never hurt us. Your mom was a boldface liar, right? Lie directly to your face, all right? Words do hurt. And here what you have happening is that the Jews are calling the Gentiles and they basically have some nasty name calling going on, all right? Referring to them and identifying them on the basis of what they lack. Not on the basis of who they are, not on the basis of their identity or their cultural status, but on the basis of simply what they don't have, all right? And he moves from there. You're going to see that the Jews are going to not just name call, but they're going to actually try to exclude the Gentiles. Notice verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ on the outside, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Throughout uh, 11 and 12, you get terminology after terminology in which you're getting a sense that the Gentiles are on the outside. Separate, excluded, without God, without hope. That really they come to the table without much compared to the Jews. And the Jews take incredible pride in that. So what you have happening here in a sense is a Jewish bully who's bullying the Gentiles, reminding them of all that they don't have and all that they can't have. And you're going to have Jesus in a sense here in verse 13. We're going to see in a minute, step in the middle of that and reverse that. But really, what's happening here to the Gentiles is something that you and I are no stranger to, all right? I'll tell you guys, as I think about bullies, I think back to our own personal experiences in junior high in which there was a guy named Blaine, Blaine Murphy, all right? Uh, The dude was literally like, I think, age 20 registering in seventh grade, all right? He grew a beard at like, age 10. I mean, it's just insane, all right? His truck in high school could literally park over my current Honda. I mean, it's just massive for a massive man, all right? And for whatever reason, he took a certain kind of liking to a little dude named Flint. God bless Flint. I don't know where he is. I know he still has scars from Blaine because he had a special relationship with Blaine. Blaine would take Flint and any opportunity he had to show Blaine's strength to Flint, all right? And so I remember two specific moments in Flint's life and in his relationship with Blaine in which at one point we were at a house one time, all right? And uh, the owners of the house had what was kind of known as a cat mat, all right? It was a little doormat right in front of a doorway in which they didn't want the cat to walk in. And if the cat walked on that doormat, it would provide a nice, friendly little shock, electrocution, all right, to let the cat know, Don't go here. Blaine thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to take said Flint, all right? Dangle him upside down and have Flint kiss the cat mat. Now, if you're walking barefoot over cat mat, it's not got enough shock to get you. But if you're kissing the cat mat, it does. And so I remember being in this house and seeing poor little Flint dangling from his feet with giant Goliath-like Blaine holding him upside down, making him kiss the doormat, all right? I also remember a moment in time in Flint's life in which Blaine would take him, all right, and stuff him, accordion-like, into the underneath compartment in a TV entertainment center in which the DVD player and the satellite dish was kept. Folded him, stuffed him, closes the door, all right? And so every single one of us knew this was absolutely wrong, but none of us physically could do anything to Blaine. So we were there on, on uh, Flint's behalf, but we couldn't stop anything because Blaine was just a bully who name called and who pushed and who pushed and excluded and made Flint's life miserable, all right? Many times what you have happening here is you have an individual bullying situation going on that we're so familiar with as we look back at our own past experiences. But where this kind of thing really gets ugly is when you see one group bullying another group. The kind of evils that you see from one individual to another individual really are not that extreme as to what you begin to see from one group to another group. In fact, as you think back to actual history, you think about the Holocaust where you have a group of people excluding another group of people with a kind of horrific evils that you can never even imagine. Think back to the American Civil War period as well, in terms of what our nation did to certain people of a certain skin color, absolutely horrific. Of what one group is capable against another group. It's really interesting. A guy named Niebuhr says this about uh, difficulties like this. He says that as individuals, men believe that they ought to love and serve each other and establish justice between each other. That individual to individual, there's a sense and a possibility of benevolence, of charity, of kindness, and of love. But it looks incredibly different from group to group. Notice what he says. Contrasted to individual relationships as racial and national groups they take for themselves, whatever their power can command. Hence, a just society is not going to be built by a little more education or a few more sermons on love. Niebuhr's point is that as you look at a society, as you look at individual relationships, there's an expectation and even a possibility that an individual with an individual will show kindness and selflessness to them and love. But as you look at a society, as you look at a nation, as you look at a world sphere, what you have happening over and over again is a completely constant trend in which groups do not act selflessly toward other groups. The only thing that will check the self-interest of one group over another is power. All right? Power. So what Niebuhr will say in, in a book elsewhere, he'll talk about the only way that you can check the self-interest of a group is by power. And the horrific reality that ensues is that you'll have one group who oppresses another group. But once that oppressed group finally gets out underneath that oppression and they become in power, guess what they do to the next group that comes along? They oppress. In a group level, and a sociological level, what you have happening over and over again, similar to what you see in Ephesians 2 verses 11 and 12, is that you have groups hating other groups. Groups oppressing other groups. And the only way to change that is by power. But by power, a group changes it so as to a- oppress another group. And so the great question becomes, what do you do to check this? If in the midst of communities and societies, in the midst of a sociological picture, how in the world do groups come along and how in the world can you have a picture of what community was intended to be? Because as you look at our world scene, you see nothing like what God originally intended us to experience. How do you fix that? If power is the only way to fix it, then who has ultimate power? It's interesting. I'm going to give you guys a clip. Some of you guys might follow the Tonight Show, in which you know uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon loves to portray Vladimir Putin. I'm going to give you guys a clip of one possible way to check national powers, all right? One possible way to bring national powers to an understanding and to some kind of humility, all right?
1: Hey, it's Dr. Phil here. Today, we are focusing on a very serious issue troubled relationships. Now, my first two guests have been in a very public spat for the past few months, but they say they're trying to work it out. So please welcome back Vlad and Barack. Ooh. 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 Mr. President. Uh, all right, indifferent. I don't want to talk to just barack and vladimir the world leaders i want to talk to the little boys inside of you little, little barry and little vladdy little vladdy poot poot okay? two boys just playing together in a sandbox happy carefree just two bouncing bundles of joy you with me vlad I, i'm with you how about you mr president <laughs> I'm so, so young So, 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 so innocent I I don't want to grow up I'm I'm a Toys R Us kid All right Just go with it Let it out Let the feelings flow Uh, From bikes to trains to video games It's the biggest toy store there is Gee (laughs) whiz I don't want to grow up, because, Vladdy, if I did, I wouldn't be Toys R Us kid.
0: (laughs) It ain't much, but it is some common ground. All right, I know you're thinking, what in the Sam world is happening? All right, that just happened. So, national powers, Barack and Vladimir Putin, how do you get them on the same page? The only way that, in our honest world that you get them to get on the same page is by power. Not by Dr. Phil, not by some kind of weird counseling situation speaking to their inner boys inside. All right. I love the little Vladdy, Vladdy, poop, poop. All right. So, um, but how do you, in a sense, bring world harmony? How do you bring peace? How do you establish peace? Who has the power to do it? Ultimately what you can get in verse three is an incredible, verse thirteen is an incredible reversal here. Verses eleven and twelve really are all about the shame of exclusion. Verse 13 and on is going to be about the honor of inclusion. And notice who Paul puts forward as center stage is the who to the answer to that question. Verse 13, notice what Paul will say. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 13 is an incredible contrast, an incredible move in the passage. Verses 11 and 12, you have two groups who are warring with one another. One is, in a sense, in a uh, superior position who's acting, in a sense, as a bully over the Gentiles. All right, Reminding them over and over again of what they don't have. Reminding them over and over again that they stand on the outside looking in on something they cannot be a part of. How in the world are you going to check that false motive? How in the world are you going to bring those two groups to not just kind of an equality, but to an understanding and a respect and even a unity? How in the world does that happen? we're going to see here in verse 13 is that Jesus Christ is going to be the answer to that because that's where Paul is going to begin he's going to begin in a sense with a who it's Jesus verse 13 he's going to be the solution to the problem but i want you guys to know exactly what he does kind of get, you get it in a series of ways throughout the section but i want you guys to kind of i'm going to walk back with you guys through the section and show you exactly what Jesus does for these two groups of people all right again trying to come to an understanding of exactly what is the community that Jesus has established and that he's built verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near. Incredible reversal from exclusion to inclusion, from distance to proximity, that those who were, in a sense, on the outside, distantly looking in, have been brought near on the inside, looking from the outside now. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That he's taken these two groups who had hostility with one another, who are, in a sense, butting heads with one another, and he's established peace between them. How in the world does he do that? How does he take a group that is from the outside looking in and brings them inside? And how does he take a group of people who are, two groups of people who are warring with one another? And how does he establish peace? Notice how the text continues on, verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. There's peace again. Verse 16. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Verse 17, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. The section here, there's some incredible interpretive complexity going on, but I want to highlight just a few themes for you real quick. First is this, I think you have going on a a theme in which you have external privileges being righted. You had two groups of people who, on the outside, externally speaking, had an incredibly different list of privileges, all right? And what you have happening here is that Jesus is going to bring the group who is far away and is going to bring them near so that there is an equalizing of the field, so to speak. That what Jews had, now Gentiles have. That moving forward after what Jesus Christ will do here, that Jews and Gentiles will be on the same playing field, having the same external privileges, And he doesn't just write the field externally speaking, but he's going to bring about an internal reconciliation as well. The theme that's used over and over again is that of peace, that Jesus Christ will establish peace. We're going to see this in a minute. It's not just a peace between individuals to God. It's going to be a peace as well from one man to another. The you look back to Genesis 3, when human sin enters the picture, it doesn't just lead to an alienation between man and God, vertically speaking, but it leads to an alienation between man and man as well. And that what Jesus Christ on the cross will do is that he will bring about a reconciliation not just of the horizontal, but even of the vertical. That he's going to establish a writing of both of those things. So you have, in a sense, external privileges being equalized and you're going to have internal reconciliation happening as well that Jesus will write the field. I was thinking back to moments where I don't know what your high school experience was like. For some of us, we were not, again, as I said, uh, on the inside, uh, looking at all the losers from us. Some of us were more on the outside, looking in at all the winners, all right? And so for some of us, as you look at TV shows, you look at different pictures, uh, I love how movies or different TV shows will capture this timeless thought that some of us have had, which is this. That in high school, I didn't have much, right? But now I do. And those that had a lot in high school, I'm hoping they're working at McDonald's. And when you come back to a high school reunion, the great great dream and the great vision is now that there's been an an equalizing of external privileges, there's not yet a writing of the internal need for reconciliation. So you have these incredible stories of revenge at high school reunions, all right? I love those stories. Where you have now a story of someone coming in who wants to just lay waste to all the popular people back in the day, all right? I know I still have some baggage and I'm working through it, all right? But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to write the field not just in terms of external privileges, but he's going to write the field in terms of internal reconciliation. He's going to give to the Jews and the Gentiles both the same thing. They're both going to have access to him, but he's also going to fix the internal issue that they had with one another. The hostility that existed between, he's going to remove it and he's going to establish in its place peace. And it's not just that he's going to write the field in terms of external privileges and in terms of eternal reconciliation, but he's going to make these two groups that hated each other they were hostile with one another, and they're now going to get along, and they're going to have to get along now in the same community, all right? Notice the text again. Notice what he says uh, in verse 16. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. He's going to take these two groups who are at war with one another. He's going to reconcile them, and he's going to put them in one body known as the church. That what the church is is a, con- is a combination. It is a collecting in of men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That it is a body that has a unity of purpose and of headship of Jesus Christ. But it is a body that has incredible diversity of who it is made up of. That all are welcome into the church. That you're going to have men and women. You're going to have Jews and Gentiles. You're going to have people of all kinds of ethnicity. All kinds of cultural backdrops. You're going to have incredible diversity in this one body. In fact in verse 15 you get it said most powerfully at the very end of it. He says that so that in himself he might make the two groups into one new man. That what he does is he takes these two groups of people and he makes them one community. Really, even as we speak of the church, what we're speaking of is a community. And really, I, I think for many of us, we don't capture that to its full extent. For those of us who have been born and raised here in an American culture in which we're very individualistic, where we're very much all about individual rights, we get the individual idea very, very well. And so we come into the spiritual arena and we think only individually and we miss the fact that all of the spiritual arena is all about a communal experience that it is not just about you and your relationship with God. <laughs> in fact, much of what you're, you and your relationship with God is going to be defined as and, and manifested as going to be in your relationship with his body, the church. And so that you, and you as you walk into a relationship with Jesus Christ, what you're walking into is a family. In fact, one of my favorite pictures is you think about the methods here about what Jesus has done. You're going to see this over and over again through the cross, through the blood of Christ. What you're getting a picture again over and over again is the price that Jesus Christ paid. That as Jesus put his body on a cross and as he suffered a death that should have been ours, what he does is he doesn't just fix the guilt that exists for you and I because we've all fallen short. We've all sinned. We've all incurred a guilt and a debt. And what the gospel is and what the cross is is not just a picture of the wiping away of guilt and the wiping away of debt. Where the cross is a wonderful picture, and this is really the emphasis of Ephesians 2, where the cross is a wonderful picture of is a group of people who were excluded that have now been invited in. The incredible picture that we get over and over again of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just justification, which we speak of over and over again as the removal of debt or guilt so that we can have forgiveness. But the picture of the gospel is also one in which we get a picture of, we also speak of in terms of Reconciliation that there was hostility, there was separation, relationally speaking. And what the cross does is it brings about a peace that's established. And then not just a peace that's established, but specifically speaking, a peace that's established that welcomes someone into a family. For every single one of us, I think we have a fear of whether we belong or not. I think for every single one of us, we have a fear as to whether someone will accept us if they really knew us. We're constantly looking for acceptance. We're constantly looking for belonging. And what the cross does for you and I is it answers that in a way that nothing else and no one else can. The cross says you belong. The cross says you are accepted. The cross says you are lovable. And the cross answers that in a way that nothing else can, which is why the good news of the gospel is a wonderful invitation to a family. A family that is going to have a unity underneath a person known as Jesus Christ, but a family that is still jacked up, all right? (laughs) Still imperfect, still struggling, but a a family that is frankly incredibly diverse as well. In the midst of our diversity, what Jesus Christ is trying to do is bring about a unity that shows to the world something that the world is desperately looking for but cannot find. That the church is meant to be a picture, ultimately, of what Jesus Christ is doing in the world scene, bringing about a unity and a peace that's established between people of very different backgrounds, very different values. Accomplishing something that only Jesus Christ can. No kind of counselor, no Dr. Phil, no world treaty. All right? Only what Jesus Christ can accomplish. So, what does it mean for you and I? What do we do with this? Let me give you guys a couple takeaways, practically speaking. For some of us, I'll, I'll say, I think as we look at summer school and we look at summer here in town, uh, frankly, things are a lot smaller, which frankly is kind of nice. It's kind of nice to be more intimate, it's kind of nice to have an opportunity to really get to know each other. And one of the things I want to say to you guys, for many of us, because our friends are scattered to the four corners of the earth. Some of them are at camps that we really wish we could have been at. Some of your friends are uh, traveling Europe, which again, you also wish you could have been at, but you're here. Is God still good? I hope so, right? But you're here, all right? Uh, and so for many of you, your friends are scattered across the world. And so uh, I think every single one of us, I think especially in the summer, is looking for community. It's looking for some friendships. Is looking for some people to find that we feel a belonging and a sense of acceptance. And so let me give you guys a couple takeaways in light of that. First is this. The finding community always starts with Jesus Christ. That when we're looking for community, when we're looking for relationships, what we are ultimately looking for is a place to belong a place of acceptance and a place that says to us, or people that say to us, you're lovable. And the reality and the challenge is for many of us, we are trying to answer that through community when the answer for that actually is the cross. And when we miss the cross and we sidestepped it and we run to community for that answer, we end up using community to answer that question in a way that we become a consumer of community and not a contributor to community. If the cross has an answer for you that you're valuable, that you're loved, then you will pursue relationships for all the wrong reasons. Facebook friend counts become a way for you to assume and to show to the world, here's how many people love me and know me, right? Uh, I want to display and I want to say to everyone, I'm valuable, right? We step into dating relationships so that we're constantly insecure, so that someone can tell us and we can show to, to ourselves that we're valuable. And again, then we step into dating for all the wrong reasons. Unless you've realized that the cross has answered that question for you, you cannot step into community for all the right reasons. So what I want to say to you guys is no matter the kind of community that you may experience, no matter the perfect kind of community that you might experience, it's not going to answer the question, it's not going to fix that fear that's in you. That if you were truly known, would people run away? That fear of rejection, that fear of that desire, that anxiety about finding a place to belong, that the cross answers that in a way that no one else and nothing else can. And if you keep sidestepping the cross, if you keep sidestepping the person of Jesus Christ who answers that in a way that no one else can, then you'll continue to pursue community for all the wrong reasons and it will not answer and it will not fix that crying hole and that crying need that's in you. Dating marriage does not fix it. Jesus Christ is the only one that can fix it, which is why this whole passage takes a turn at verse 13 when Jesus Christ enters the scene. He is the one that starts your whole experience of community when you realize that you're accepted, when you realize that you're loved, when you realize that you have a place to belong, then you can step into community with a whole new perspective and a whole new motive. Second thing I'll tell you guys really as you think about community uh, is growing spiritually always involves community. It's been said before that it takes a whole village to raise a child, all right? Uh, The same is true for a believer in Jesus Christ. It takes a whole church to raise a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll tell you guys, I, I am an only child, all right, and so much of my whole spiritual life and walk through high school was a very individualistic thing. I actually thought I was incredibly mature and incredibly uh, spiritual, and so I got to college, I had a roommate for the first time in my life, and I realized <laughs> my community now is no longer built around my needs, right? There's someone here to check it, and I began to realize very quickly I had a lot of growing to do. I'll tell you guys, for me, college was one of the most transformative periods in my life because it was one of the periods that I experienced the most powerful kind of community that I've ever experienced in my life. That it is in the context of community that you guys are going to grow. Which is why I think that the description here at the end of chapter 2 is incredibly powerful. Notice what Paul will speak of in terms of this community, in terms of this church. Notice what he says in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household, God's family. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a whole, holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church is built and established and formed on the basis of each individual person. The church needs you and you need the church. Right? Every single part and person in the church is unique and specifically designed and gifted for the purpose of the church body. You cannot walk, spiritually speaking, on your own. You need the church and the church needs you. Every single part and every single person is unique and every single part and person is absolutely necessary. We need you and you need us. One of my favorite stories comes from uh, one of my seminary professors in school who, as an 11-year-old, was, uh, his family took off for Madagascar as a missionary. All right? So he's on the island of Madagascar on the coast of South Africa and his whole desire growing up at that point in time was to be a part of the uh, Boy Scout program. All right, Slight little problem uh, on the island of Madagascar. There's no scout program, right? And so his dad, wanting to be a good dad, wanted to be supportive to his son and the different skills that he wanted to learn, the way that he wanted to grow, looked into it and found that there was actually a lone scout program that you could do if you were in a distant spot where you had no other troops that could come around you, all right? And so he went through the entire scouting experience, all right? So he'd be tying knots there by himself. Uh, he would be having campouts and cookouts there, you know, by himself. He would be having troop meetings, calling roll, calling his own name, answering it, and no one else, right? There by himself, all right? Incredibly awkward and unreal. The, the, the whole idea, the whole concept of a Lone Scout program, frankly, is contrary to the whole Scout experience. Obviously, in much the same way, I'll tell you guys, I think for many of us, we try to lead, lead the Lone Christian program. Let me just walk with God, all right? I'll consume when I need to. I'll walk with God, and I'll kind of do my God thing, all right? And we miss that, really, the whole context in which we grow is not just individually in a quiet time or in a, an individual relationship with God but it's in the context of community. That just as ridiculous as it is to have a lone scout program, so it is as ridiculous to have a lone believer program within the church. No such thing exists, right? I want to challenge you, as even if you step in the summer, as you're thinking about your summer and what God has for you, I want to challenge you to consider really small groups. That you need the church and the church needs you. So where is it you're going to step in into a place that you can be known and that you can know others? Small groups is a wonderful place for that. Where is it you can step into a place where you can serve because your gifts and your skill sets are needed? The church is a wonderful place for that. And hopefully the kind of community that you experience in the church, I'll promise you, is not perfect. The church can still be hurtful. right? The church can still scar you, burn you, hurt you. But hopefully, hopefully, that in the church you're beginning to experience, you're beginning to see something that looks so radically different than your family life, your campus life, your work life, that hopefully you're finding in the church a kind of community that is transformative, that is accepting, that is challenging, and that is loving. That's our hope for you guys. As you come back here, the summers you gear up for a summer here in town is that you guys would jump into the life of the church. That Sunday morning is a wonderful spot to get started. But in terms of community, in terms of gathering, we gather here physically to worship and to come under some teaching. But really where transformation happens, honestly, is not here on a Sunday morning, but it's in a small group setting. But as you get into the life of other men and women, as you get into and getting to know one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another, serving one another, that's where life change really begins to happen. And really what we want for you guys is that you begin to step into that arena this summer. Jump into one of our small groups, we'll kick those up next Thursday, all right? And I'll give you guys some more details about that. But really, as the worship guys come back up, we're gonna give you guys a little bit of chance here as we wrap up this morning. And I really want you guys to think through and really wrestle and come before the Lord and go, hey, why is it I have such a fear of being known? Why is it walking across the room to someone who may not know me and trying to start a conversation seems at times so terrifying? Why am I so blasted insecure, constantly worrying about whether I'm dating someone, constantly worrying about whether I have value or not? And then I'd love for you guys to spend time reflecting on what is Jesus Christ said and what is it the cross communicate to you? That if the father would send his only son to live perfectly, righteously in human flesh so that he could die on a cross on your behalf, what does that say about your value? What does that say about the extent that God loves you? And if that's true, then how does it change your perspective? How does it change your experience and your pursuit of community and the people of God? How can you step into those relationships with a whole different perspective, a whole different motive, and a whole different purpose?